If you want to know how to create like the greats, let's break it down. Dr. Julie, it's a pleasure to have you on Create Like the Greats. I'm super excited for this conversation. Thank you for making the time. Um, it's uh, been a long time. I feel like we've been connected over the internet for quite some time. So having the chance to do this is truly a, a honor and I'm uh, looking forward to our chat today. Um, I want to jump right into it. So I want to go back into time and I want to go back into a little bit of your history. So I have a feeling in a sense from our years of being connected that you have a connection to horses and ponies. And I need to know, like, did you grow up with horses? Were you on a farm? Like what, where did that all come from? Um, what is that? Well, thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. You and I have been connected forever and I'm excited to kind of meet you in person. Um, but yes, I grew up on a farm. It was a much different farm than I own today. Now I'm in kind of an older historic farmhouse uh, in the country. When I grew up, it was a little self-sustaining farm, but I did grow up with ponies and horses and riding. So I thought, you know, I would spend a lot of time out there in the city and doing some things and then come back and do it right. So my goal is really to create this kind of Martha Stewart-esque property that is less kind of traditional farm and more estate and something I can make beautiful and for family to kind of really make something for generations to come. So that was my reason for kind of coming back to the farm, but I do have a very close connection to horses. I love it. Tell me a bit about the farm that you're on now. So are you like, is it a farm in the sense that you're like growing things and like that you have animals and like, what's the farm today look like? So the farm today looks like it's from the 1700s. So pretty old. We have a couple of barns on the property. We do have horses that are boarding here. And so, you know, they're not my animals and I don't have to take care of them right now. So that's not the phase in life I'm, I'm in right now, but we do have horses. I can look out my window and see horses walking around. I have a, you know, kind of a very, it's fairly large property. So I want to continue to kind of build that out and also to make it a little bit more leisure. So I'm hoping to, you know, put in a pool and do some things that are kind of nice as well uh, outside of just being a farm. So it's much more of an equestrian property, I guess, than a traditional farm. I'm hoping to get a field of wildflowers out there so I can just go out and cut a few things and keep them in the house. But yeah, I mean, it's just a personal project and I, I love this stuff. So it's kind of my passion outside of the work that I do. Nice. I love it. So one more piece on this. So would you have said you grew up in like a rural area, like a country? Oh, yeah. I mean, like I grew up in a very rural area in Western Pennsylvania. Like I said, we did have a farm. My high school used to bus in kids from all over the place. So, you know, my graduating class was about a thousand kids, but it's because they really bust in people from all over the place. And we spent an hour on that bus every morning. But yeah, my grandfather had a farm. And what's interesting is he bought his farm at about the same age I've purchased mine and um, moved from, you know, the suburbs, in his case, uh, the city mine, and ended up uh, buying this property and making it something really wonderful for our family. And so I, I kind of hope to replicate that model today. And I think he'd be really excited if he were alive and around today. I bet. That's so cool. Like a lot of my audience somehow have been people who come from like rural backgrounds or currently live in rural communities. I'd be curious, like working with highly successful executives, et cetera, some of the listeners would be like early stage in their career. They're in the rural communities. They want to have a massive impact. They want to have a massive career. They want to do big things. What's some advice that you would give someone who lives in a rural community who's kind of like, mm, this is this is tough. What do I do? Like, what would be your advice to someone who's uh, in the, the rural side of things and trying to break out? I think that there are a lot of opportunities when you're younger. I think it, it is beneficial oftentimes to put yourself in surroundings where you're with people who are more like you. And when you're in rural communities, oftentimes you have that sense when you look around that, you know, and there's certainly nothing wrong with it, but a lot of people are really in a in a circle where they're reinforcing themselves on what they can do, what they should go for, who they are, uh, what they should expect. You know, where I come from, it may have been expected that, you know, you go and you work in a steel mill and then that is really your life and you buy a home and that's, that's it. Uh, and you may be in a similar situation if you're sitting at home where people have this kind of expected path and you know in your heart that that kind of isn't the path for you. So being around people who are, you know, kind of pursuing a similar path. Oftentimes you find it in urban areas, sometimes you don't, but it can be incredibly beneficial. If you don't have that, find a community, whether it's Twitter or it's, you know, social media, 
and really hook up with people who are doing big things, think like you, and begin to kind of explore that path with them. Because otherwise, you're going to sit in a bunch of frustration for a very long time. So I do hope that people, you know, the internet is, we are more connected than we ever have been. And so there's plenty of opportunity there. But there is something really magical sometimes about, you know, being able to go to lunch with somebody on a regular basis who's also kind of grinding it out and working hard and trying to build things and supporting each other. Uh, That can be a really wonderful thing. I love it. One of the things that's been fascinating about your journey is how much of a presence you've been able to build on some of these various social media channels, specifically Twitter. If you're not following Dr. Julie, definitely recommend that you do. And we'll include a link to your Twitter account in the show notes. Um, When it came to social and like building your following, like what made you become such a like prolific tweeter and putting out so many bangers on Twitter? Like what sent you down that path and made you think, okay, I want to start creating great content on this platform. Um, and what has been the impact of your presence there for you? Thank you so much. That's a, that's a great question. I, much like you, I have been on social media forever and I feel like, you know, I feel like a war-torn veteran on social media. <laughs> like we've been through some, we've gotten some bruises, you and I. Um, so for me, I do feel as though I just kept tweeting about the same things. I think it's really important that it's it's easy when you're first starting out to start to go down the path of whatever is early and reinforced. Like, oh, I see I got five likes on that. That's great. I'm going to keep talking about that. But really what you want to do is choose maybe three things you're going to talk about and just talk about them all the time. And you think that people will get tired of it or bored of, of it, and they kind of won't. They are going to find, they're going to lock on to you because it's kind of their tribe. Like, this is the drum that they are beating to, and they're all, we're all going to find each other. And that takes a long time. You know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I think I've been on Twitter for 10 years, I mean, a decade. But in the past few years, people are more online. So I think that was easy to, easier to discover. I think also you can't be reticent to talk about what you're doing uh, personally. I think I held myself back for a long time because I didn't want to seem like I was bragging or I didn't want to seem like you know, you're talking about yourself too much or, you know, what are people going to think? But if you look at people who are on social and who do well on social, they're often talking about themselves. They're not particularly humble people. um, And they're like, they really put it out there and you do get some feedback for that. But the other thing to realize is that feedback feeds the algorithm too. I mean, so, you know, you see people who make their entire career posting things that are maybe not positive. So I try to be a, per, a force for good. I tweet things I genuinely believe and that I care about. I try to put a good energy out there. And I am I'm trying to be uh, very consistent in my support of other people. And certainly we're not all perfect, but I want people in the comments to feel like they find community. I certainly appreciate having them in my community. And we all kind of like fuel each other together. And I feel like that has been what's helped the the particular account to grow. One of my all-time favorite tweets from you, um, I'm going to state it right out exactly what it was. It said, honestly, so many fortunes are built out of spite and proving people wrong. I wish we talked more about it. Don't be at peace with those people who didn't see your potential. Be an absolute monster. I read that and I was ready to run through a brick wall. Um, (laughs) Such a great tweet. Could you tell me a little bit more about this because I do think you're right that we don't talk about it enough. And I want to satisfy that wish and give you the space to talk about it a little bit more. So when you sent that tweet, and even when you reflect on it now, um, what inspired that? And what are your thoughts on that idea of kind of proving people wrong today? I love that you asked this question because no one asks me about these kinds of tweets. I think they avoid them. Um, And part of it is it proves this tweet out. And it is that, you know, we all carry incredibly strong emotions and we don't talk about them in polite society, right? Like we talk about, we carry anger, we may carry rage, we may carry, um, you know, hurt or disappointment. And, you know, a lot of those things are injuries from, you know, what people think we could do, what people said our potential was, how people have seen us in the past, something that people have said to us, and that most people will tell you, they'll say, oh, now, you know, be nice, let it go, you know, all this, like, put it away, right? So you're supposed to get that emotion is intense energy. It is powerful. It is strong. So if you're pushing that in like a little box somewhere, I feel like you're not really using it for its highest and best purpose, right? Why push that energy downward and kind of 
clip your own wings when you can use it as fuel to kind of push. And so to me, you use that stuff as push and you get bigger and stronger and you have it as fuel. And that's where you get like kind of that monster. That's where you get stronger. And that's where I see it can be purposeful. And you have to be you know, cautious because energy like that can also be self-destructive and you can burn your whole house down in rage and anger or um, you know, do things that really damage yourself in that way. But channeled properly, there's really very little that can beat you uh, if you can tap into that stuff. So I don't, you know, I wrote a piece, uh, you had mentioned my Substack earlier, but I wrote a piece on Ultra Successful called Use It All. And it really taps into this point further, like where I want people to use everything they've got and make it serve you instead of saying like, let's just push this down and leave it alone because it it's not like it's going away. It's just, it's now it's just going to gnaw at you and make you weaker. So that's kind of how I see that tweet. And it's a little bit longer than the, probably the response that you wished for, but uh, that's kind of how I see it. I haven't shared this with many people, but I have a folder on my actual desktop, which is every rejection, every decline, every single person who ever like doted me. I, it's to many, it's like, all right, you're crazy. But I have that folder. And when I'm feeling like I'm not motivated, I open it up and I can just kill. I'm just able to just like unleash a whole different side of me when it comes to like getting things done. Um, so I really did appreciate that. For you, like you've, you've had some amazing success. Are you, do you still reflect on people who you're trying to prove wrong? Or like, is that even something that fuels you at all? I think about it as, you know, like I come from rural America. I'm married to a woman. I have, uh, I took a path that was pretty untraditional. There are certainly people who are not cheering for me to win out there. And I remember that I was in a graduate school class and the professor was very frustrated because sometimes people can feel very entitled or what have you. And he he said, you know, I want to go around the room and I want to ask you, what do you really think you all are going to make out there? And most people were saying kind of normally normal salary bands. And they got to me and I said this massive number and he, and he made fun of it. He, he literally ridiculed it in front of the entire class. And he said, you know, who do you think you are? Like, where do you think you're going to make this money? And I said, you know, I have a plan. I know what I'm going to do and I'm going to make this happen for myself. I said, I'm not going to get into this debt because it was a six figure debt to kind of barely scrape by. I have big plans. I want to do big things, you know, like, and, um, and so I didn't know how that would take its course. I, often, I thought it was going to be in forensics. It's where I started my path. But I think that that professor is probably still there today. And I would love to meet him at some point in the future. I think that would be a wonderful, fortuitous meeting should we ever cross paths. But I'm not seeking him out. But I do think about that from time to time. And it gives me deep satisfaction to have been able to achieve that. Congrats on being able to do it. I also heard a quote from Josh Wolf, co-founder of Lux Capital. And I think you've seen this tweet as well. Um, he always says, chips on shoulders, put chips in pockets. When you look at some of the people that you've worked with, like you work with some of the best executives in history, do those folks oftentimes have a chip on their shoulder as well? Like some of the people that you coach and that you've collaborated with over the years? Yeah, I, I think that a lot of a lot do and a lot don't. So I have people who have really strong motivations for a number of reasons. You know, some of them come from poverty, some of them just because maybe somebody told maybe they do have a chip on their shoulder and someone said certain things. Some of them have had pretty uh, traumatic experiences. Some, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons, but that chip is a push when it's there. The thing that I'm always really cautious about, though, is that sometimes the people who have chips who don't do well and end up self-destructing are the people I don't see. So maybe those folks are, you know, they could end up, you know, maybe addicted or having some other issues and I wouldn't know it. So I never want to over leverage that to say that it's always beneficial, but for the people that I work with, it is a small sample. It seems to be a great source of fuel for them. One of the things that I, I love hearing about, I'm a big underdog cheerleader. Like I love rooting for the underdog. And you just mentioned like some people come from poverty and they've been able to break out and they've been able to be successful. Is there anything that you have seen in talking with folks who literally go from the mud from zero and are able to hit 
let's say 80. Is there anything that shows up in those types of people that you feel more people who might be at the zero and might be struggling to get by should know about that journey and the things that they'll have to do to get out of it? Yeah, I think that the few things that I've learned in people who've gone through that kind of, of transformation and are self uh, kind of self-built in that way is that they are unique and they are okay being outliers, like they're okay being uniquely themselves. They're okay with the quirks that they have. And oftentimes they embrace those quirks because on your way up, you know, you think about it, you have to live a life that is going to be different than your peers. Your peers are going to be going out and doing things you're going to be building. And it, it doesn't matter what stage you're at, you know, like if you're at a certain level, you know, and you just want to start out, maybe you got through high school and college and, you know, now your friends are starting to get married and have families and they're spending every weekend doing X, Y, and Z maybe your weekend's on the computer and it seems really boring and you know, you're know you not going out to dinner and you're not going out with your friends. And a lot of times your life has to look different. And so these are all people who are kind of okay with who they are. They've acknowledged who they are and they, they really dig into that and they feel like it's not necessarily a bad thing. They don't feel a lot of pressure to be somebody they're not. And they're pretty certain on their path. And you know, when I see them today, there's still people who believe that, you know, they have more in the tank and that they aren't done yet. And, and they're still a little quirky, right? Uh, so it's a, it's a great thing. And I, I applaud people like that because it does take a lot of overcoming people who tell you, you know, who do you think you are? Or, you know, remember where you come from or, you know, all of those types of things that try to pull you back. Um, if you know where you're destined to be or where you want to go, you know, really put on those blinders and not let anything or anyone really distract you and make you feel like uh, it's not something that's meant for you. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with your customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's kind of like trying to remember the name of the guy that you just met at a networking event. Was it Ron? Was it Don? Was it John or Sean? Who knows, right? It's like that kind of impossible. HubSpot's all new service hub can help. Well, with the service solution program, at least. It brings service and success together in one powerful platform for the first time ever. With an AI-powered help desk and an AI chatbot that helps handle frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps your reps anticipate customers' needs. And a full 360 view of every customer so you can go to market and your go-to-market team can have a pulse on the accounts before you try to upsell or cross-sell. Also, you can scale, support, drive retention and revenue. And you know what that means. Better service, happier customers at every single stage of the journey. Visit HubSpot.com service to do more with your customers today. I'm going to go to another tweet that you had that I think does build on this as well, because over your course of your life, whether if you're striving for success, you're going to have a lot of people that you encounter. And one of the most important people that you might encounter is your actual partner. And you had this tweet where it said, ambitious people have two options, marry a supportive partner who knows and understands exactly what they're signing up for, or do not get married at all. Could you tell me a little bit more around the thought process behind this and why you, um, really encourage that concept of supportive partner or just don't do it. Yeah. I think that a lot of times people can get married because it's the time to get married. They can get married for a lot of different reasons, right? But the person that you choose is to, to kind of marry and spend your life with is one of the most important decisions of your life. This person is going to determine not only a lot of your personal happiness, but they're going to determine a lot of your fiscal success, whether or not they often get credit for it. You know, These are people who, when you need to work on something in your business, are either cheering you on or telling you, why do you have to do that tonight? Why can't you do this? Um, so they're going to be people who maybe they don't want to move for an opportunity. So now like that's an issue. So there are little ways in which you know you don't think about it now. If that person isn't all in and you share a vision, you're going to really struggle. And it's going to be the little things that you're going to be uh, kind of tempted to give and take on. That's going to be challenging. One of the things that I hope that people think about as they move forward is that dating is not the day-to-day. -day. And so you want to be sure that you're giving people the honest take about what you want your life to look like. Because sometimes what I find is that people are dating someone and they'll say, oh, you know, he or she wants to build a business. And they assume that this is like two or three years and then life is normal. Um, and what they, what they realize is that, hey, like very quickly, they're not just two or three years. Like this is your life. Um, 
And if you're not all in, you are going to find that there's some real challenges. So being forthright, just kind of being straightforward. And even if the romance begins in a wonderful way, letting them know that, you know, my day to day is really, you know, eight to 12 hours, you know, working on my work, then I do X, then I do Y and just being upfront about it. So people know what they're engaging in. And I do think that if you are ambitious, it is far better to pair with somebody upfront who wants you to win and wants to support that vision or be a part of it or has their own rather than get yourself in a situation where now, you know, not only do you risk losing half your net worth, but like you do have, you know, longstanding entanglements that then could be challenges uh, on the way forward. Makes sense. If you were to give someone advice who's still in the early stages, they haven't put, like they haven't gotten married yet. What are the traits that they should be looking for in the partner um, to kind of understand, okay, is this person going to be right for me? Like, is there anything that they should be striving to seek out in terms of that that per- perfect partner? I think that we hear oftentimes that, you know, opposites attract, but what we know from research is that similarities stay together. So you want somebody who is as similar to you in kind of almost any variable you can think of. So somebody who shares your values, someone who shares your financial values, somebody, because your notion of what, you know, what is success, right? If, if I were to ask you, you're going to have a different de- definition than someone else, than somebody else, than maybe me. And there's nothing wrong with any of those definitions, but you should both be kind of on the same page, striving to an endpoint. And the values along the way are important. So, you know, is it really true for you that, you know, your spouse is over your work that like, is it true for you? Maybe you value your faith over any of those things. So like these things are really, really important. I also think you have to, to think about dating and, you know, as you're, you're kind of sifting through potential partners, you know, marrying a whole person who is mature, not somebody who like plays games, somebody who doesn't know what they want someone who's ghosting you, like get a mature person who knows what they want kindness I'm a big fan of, openness I'm a big fan of, having like as many helpfulness green flags as you can, um, and being thoughtful about this because even though your feelings will put you in a certain place, I mean, this is the most important decision you're going to make. So make it with your head as well as your heart and really look for traits that are going to be compatible for you and somebody you're going to have a great time with as you go through life and explore this world ahead. I love it. That's awesome. With some of the folks that you've seen thrive in both their career and in their personal life, for that individual, the person who's ambitious, hungry, is trying to build something that's big and has a a lasting impact, what are things that you've seen or maybe have caught from them as things that they do to be able to maintain um, a strong relationship while also having a strong and successful career? So these are individuals who are intentional they have to make it a priority and put time into it. And they know that just like their business, if they pay no attention to it, it's going to fail. And so they make a deliberate effort to have things like, you know, date nights, they shut off at a certain point. They may have certain rituals in the morning, like, Hey, we have coffee every morning from six to seven. There may be certain things, but they are always doing small things to make sure there are touch points and they're nurturing it because their tendency, I think they're very aware that their tendency is to become immersed in what they do. And while that's great for building and it's really good to be that focused, it also, as much as you focus in, you're also blocking out. It's easy to block out like the text message, the touch points, the things that make people feel loved or important because you're so in the zone. And People can interpret that as I don't matter, but the real interpretation is oftentimes, you know, they're they're kind of distracted or singularly focused. And so it's important to make an intentional conversation, intentional touch points. I had one guy who did this really great thing that I love. Uh, he wasn't a client, but a gentleman that I spoke with. And he said, you know, every day I make a note card and I say on it, how can I be the best husband I can be today, the best father I can be today, and the best CEO I can be today? And just one thing, right? So maybe a husband, it's, I'm going to call my wife at lunch, or I'm going to send her a lovely text uh, for their kid. Maybe it's, we'll go out to ice cream later, or play video game with them. And for the CEO, they'll have one thing that makes them outstanding in, in their profession. I'm going to give some really positive feedback to my uh, executive who really want a great deal over the weekend. So I think that the intentionality is the thing that's the same with all of them. One of the pieces that you did write in your newsletter was around the idea of having no plan B. And to me, that screams intention. Like if you have plan A and you're intentionally chasing that, um, there's 
there's really no question that you're going to be relentless in putting all around it. Could you give me a, and share with the listeners just a little bit more around that idea of having no plan B and what you meant in that and what it means to you? Sure. Having, you know, when, when we have a plan B, it's usually because we have a fallback and a fallbacks are meant for like cognitive, I, I call it cognitive outs, right? Like these are ways in, when a, a cognitive out is that you have something in the back of your mind where I always have this, right? And so when things get really hard, if you have this thing that's really close to you, the temptation is often going to be when things get really hard to say, well, why am I putting up with this? Why am I doing this when I can just, you know, go back and do X? And so you don't want to really leave cognitive outs for yourself, but you do want to assess and protect against downside. So by that, I mean, you know, you, I don't think people should quit their job and have no money in the bank and say, no plan B, let's go. <laughs> I think that's, that's wild. But you can have, you know, six months of expenses or a year in the bank and then say, look, I'm going to make a real run at doing something different. And if I am not making income three months before the year is up, I'm going to start looking for a job in earnest. That's a very different position than somebody who says, well, I'm going to stay part-time, like I'm going to do this and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I told my employer that I might be back in three months. So he's holding a position for me and I'm going to see what happens. That person is the temptation to go back to something easy. Comfort is where we all fall down. And, you know, and so you're setting yourself up to, to possibly fall down uh, if things are really easy, because the hard things are what make kind of the other side of the hard things are where some of the things start to get good and you never get to see it if you don't kind of trudge through it. It's all the content, like for example, that people make that never get seen before the content actually gets seen. You've got to go through that. So it can be easy. Like, I don't know how long you were making content before you became as big as you are. You know, if you're putting content out there, nobody, at first, nobody looks, nobody cares. Yeah. It's been a long time. I can remember my first pieces, they would get a like from my mom and maybe my buddy Marcus, but like, that was it. There was not a lot of traction on the content, but you just have to kind of keep putting in the reps. And I can remember it being very uncomfortable to even share the content because all of my friends were like, we were just young, early in our careers, not even in careers. Like we were sharing content about what we were doing on the weekend. Nobody was sharing things about business. And I was this weird kid sharing stuff about business. Everybody's like, what's going on? So you mentioned there in your statement, you said comfort is where a lot of us fall and doing things that are uncomfortable can be very difficult for people. Could you just elaborate on that idea of like comfort is where a lot of us fall? What does that mean? I think, you know, one of the things that I've said in the past is like that, you know, oftentimes as we're moving forward, you know, comfortable, it feels like you know, some of these things can feel like a nice warm blanket. You run back to what you know. Uh, and all of us do that sometimes under stress. We run back to what we know. But when we're doing it, you know, getting through comfort and getting into discomfort, I always ask people to piece out what is creating the discomfort for you, like name it, because then you can address it when things are vague and when that's when they get overwhelming. So if you say, look, I just hate putting content out there because nobody likes it. Well, what do you hate about it? Is it I feel like no one sees it. I feel like it's a waste of time. I feel like people are you know, ridiculing me. I feel like, like, name it. Because once you name it, you can address the thing that's actually causing the discomfort and, you know, kind of call yourself out on some of the BS a little bit. Like if it's, you know, you're putting yourself out there and you feel uncomfortable, is it because, look, I don't get any lights, other people do, and now I'm comparing, right? Like, so are you comparing to somebody who has been doing this to 10 years and you just started? Are you comparing yourself to somebody who is, you know, like kind of starting from a different line? Are you like, so what's that about? And do you, do you care about that enough to stop? Um, so I always think when things get uncomfortable, is it really worth sacrificing the end goal to not be uncomfortable today? And we see people like Gary V or Gary Vaynerchuk, who, you know, now is really over a bit of an empire, but he starts out pairing candy with wines and like the most ridiculous videos ever. And I'm sure now he doesn't go, oh, you know, those videos were masterful, but they're not our best work. And maybe it's good that it's like that, like that sometimes our worst work gets to not be seen by a lot of people and our better work up front really gets the attention. Um, 
but we all have to go through it. And there is nobody who starts out on expert level. Most people are starting on novice and we're all figuring it out initially. So give yourself a little grace and an ability to become an expert by doing the things it requires. Yeah, I tell folks all the time, I'm like, Beyonce didn't start as Beyonce. Like at some point, she was a four-year-old kid learning how to sing. And then over time, with practice and putting in the work and staying committed and showing up for choir practice, blah, 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 she became Beyonce. But it took a lot of years. And a lot of people don't realize that or even think about that. And something that I've also noticed that I'd be curious to get your take on is like, the idea of hard work is something that online tends to get a bad rep sometimes. Um, there's a bit of a, a backlash against things like hustle and grind, and people are not really about that topic anymore. Um, but you still tell people you got to work hard. Um, and you're, you're, you don't like step down when people are saying, like, no, 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 you don't work. You shouldn't work hard, blah, blah, blah. What are your thoughts on the backlash against working hard right now on the internet? I, th- I find it really curious that people want to opt out of the things that are essential to building anything great. There is there is really no one I know or that I've ever met with who, like, for example, I'll meet with professional athletes. They don't say, you know, I felt a little lazy these past couple of years. So I watched a lot of Netflix and then I decided, hey, maybe the Cowboys are interested in me. Like, you have to really do, you know, the hard work and you have to put in things that are tough and sometimes hurt and are grinding. So it's odd to me that people want to opt out of that process and yet expect the rewards that come with going through that process. Um, and, And sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect that, you know, when you're seeing somebody, it's kind of like even fitness. You know, I'll tell people that as much as you see people who are very fit online, who seem to be doing great things, that a lot of my clients actually struggle with fitness a long time. And then once their companies are doing well is when they start thinking about fitness because they just, they haven't had the time. And sometimes there are health impacts and those things are a reality sometimes. And I don't advocate for that. But what I do know is that I don't know of anyone I have worked with across the spectrum who has not, could not tell you stories about long hours, hard work, falling, like having struggles with, um, you know, just being tired and having times when they've gone through that, feeling discouraged to get to the other side. And now they're not there. I mean, in the initial stages, I think people forget that, or maybe don't know that the way in which growth should happen ideally is that you do all the work at first. And then as you move forward, you begin to piece things out, right? You, you're pulling things out of, of that so that you can start doing higher leverage things. And then you're piecing more out. And then you're doing kind of higher leverage things. And eventually, you know, when people start to see you have nice cars or you live in a nice place, you're piecing out all of the kind of the more grinding work. And people go, look, see, this person doesn't work that hard. Um, but they have for the last decade, and now they're finally able to have more flexibility in their life. And it's not that they're not working. They often are doing now different types of work that don't look like work. So an example would be like, sometimes I'll have like a large real estate developer or someone as a client. Now the large part of their work is, you know, raising money or having meetings that are forming relationships or flying out to do golf with somebody to form a, to get an investment that golf game could be a million dollar golf game if it gets an investment. High leverage, really important. But I'm sure that the people who are doing financial modeling would look at him and say, yeah, you're not really doing the work, my man. So uh, work looks different over time. Yeah, it's true. The high leverage versus low leverage, I think that's an interesting concept that also is not really spoken to too often. Could you get a little specific on like what's the difference between low leverage and high leverage and the types of tasks that operate at those different types of levels? Sure. I mean, I think that there's working when you're you're talking about lower leverage things, they're often things that need to get done, but are not really pushing the business forward. It's kind of in maintaining the business. So for example, maybe a lower leverage task for somebody who's in your seat or has your particular expertise is if you, Ross, are, um, you know, doing every calendar management for yourself. That might be a lower leverage task that can be done by somebody else who's really great at it and probably more efficient than you are. And then you can be 
strategizing and planning content, which is probably much more effective for your business. I mean, you need great ideas. You need to be able to uh, find, think about how to execute those ideas. And you need to think about how you're going to distribute or whatever it is that you're going to do. I'm not an expert in your field. So you're thinking about all those things. Can you really be strategic and creative if you're trying to fit it in like the two minutes between your meetings and all of the scheduling that you have to do? Probably not. But you having these great ideas, having somebody else who's great at scheduling help you, now you're in high leverage work and the effectiveness of what you do gets better and better. It helps your business move forward and, you know, it ends up getting you more, um, you know, helping your business get more popularity and certainly uh, more more resources. What does hard work even look like for someone? Like some people, I don't know if they can even define what hard work means when you say you do have to work hard. What does that mean? If I work my 40 hours, am I working hard? Is that, is that sufficient 30 hours a week? Like what's sufficient for me to be a hard worker? I think it depends on what phase you're at and what you're doing, right? I mean, the hardest probably I've ever worked is as a waitress. So I can tell you that, you know, what I do today is, is pretty easy comparative to being a, like physical labor and work. Um, not that it's easy, but there's working hard and, gr- and like physically and there's working hard cognitively. Um, so I do think that it depends on what phase you're, you're at. So, you know, in your career, if you want to get ahead, I think that if you're just working kind of the same hours as everyone else and doing what everyone else does, you're probably going to get the results that everyone else gets. So I would try to measure it by, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who really values people who go outside of what's typically expected because that's where you get uh, unex- you know, better results. It, it, the same can be said for like monocultures, which I think happens a lot in professions. You know, you're a marketer, you're on, you have, you have marketing follower on marketing following on Twitter, you're in marketing forums, you go to marketing conferences, you watch marketing videos and like, where are all your ideas going to come from? Where are you going to be unique? You're surrounded by the same. So I feel that way with work as well. If you're just a lot of my work, which is for me, I think kind of interesting is that I follow people who don't do anything like what I do. I want to hear from artists, investors. I want real estate folks. I want to hear from people in tech. I want folks from all backgrounds. I want to know kind of where I can draw ideas and inspiration. And I'm not going to find that if I'm just in a whole room full of coaches and we're all talking about coaching things. Um, That feels like an echo chamber. So if you're working hard, Make sure that you're doing work that is um, not common work. And I think that's where you get a kind of uncommon results. You start applying things from outside of your field into it and doing novel things. When you're coaching folks, what do you see as some of the biggest blocks to get them from their, to the next level? So on average, there's always a next level for almost everyone. What's a common block that you see your clients running into that you have to kind of coach them through to get to the other side? I think a common block is that people get to a certain level. They believe that like they know inherently, like they're frustrated, right? I think frustration is the most common thing that I will encounter when people are doing really well, right? You're running a company. If your company is worth like $400 million, you can tell other people like, yeah, I'm really frustrated. I know I can be doing more. And they're like, you're doing fine. Like go away. Um, but for them, I think that they there's not a lot of peers. There's not a lot of people who are going to mentor you. There's nobody who really understands the blockers that's happening there. So it's something, it's never skills, right? It never is skills. It is always something internal to them. Skills they have, you know, if you've gotten to a certain level, you can you are a self-learner and you will learn any skill you need to know. But it is something internal that is preventing you from doing this next thing, whatever it is. And usually if I ask them, what would a next level look like? They all know. They, they will tell you what it looks like. Um, and so then we start to say, look, if I say, hey, what's the next level look like? And they know what this would look like. Then we start to say, well, why aren't you doing this? Here we start to hear some of the things that are interfering. Um, well, you know, we had, we had really solid, solid profitability and I don't want to push too much on X or, you know, oh, well, we think that we can do Y and, you know, this person, maybe there's an executive who, you know, is kind of lower risk and, and really doesn't want to take those moves right now. The economy is a little X. So 
we start kind of feeling out where those hesitations are. And that's where we really start to dig in. And it's going to be different for everyone, but it's never skills. It's always you. And if the vision is there, I'm going to ask you why it's not happening. And that's where we're going to start to get into some of the pain points. And sometimes it is that like, maybe there's an executive that is a really good friend, has been with you on some of the journey. And it's hard to say that isn't the right person for the seat. You know, so there's a lot of different ways in which people get stuck um, or hold back the progress of their own business. And it's really kind of my job to call some of those things out and have some real discussions around those things. When it comes to the emotional side of business, like getting people to remove the emotion and think purely from a logical sense, that's a big, big shift. How do you approach that and like, yeah, like how do you approach that with an executive where they're like emotionally driven by a commitment, a sunk cost, et cetera, and you see it because you're a third party, but they don't see it. How do you coach them through that type of uh, an environment? I try to pull it away from the individual entirely and make it about something that we can both agree is objective, like metrics. I try to make it look like, because let's just say that there's an executive that's underperforming. And you feel very strong, like you like this person. They come in, you chat in your office, you have a good rapport. Um, So we start to look at that. And then usually I'll ask them something like, what would an ideal person in this role look like? Oh, and then they have all these ideas. And I say, well, tell me a little bit about how this person lines up to that. Oh, like it's, it's heartbreaking, right? I mean, and so there are, I try to pull it into as much as I can areas where we can have objective conversations and measurements so that these individuals or, you know, the things that are emotional have the opportunity to show themselves out in a new way that isn't. And then we can address it there. I'm not going to try to tell someone not to care or not to be emotional about something or to call them out on that. But what I am going to do is try to create a different framework for examining the same information so that they can look at it more objectively. I love that framework. Describe the ideal person, all of the things that they would do in this role. And now let's talk about the person who's in there. Are there any other frameworks and cheat sheets that you have in your mind that you've applied that you think executives and leaders should be thinking about? Is there any that come to mind that you can say, oh, this is something else that we've done that that works well? Yeah, I think that one of the things that people try to avoid, no matter what level they're at, are really hard conversations, right? It feels very conflict. It feels very me versus you. And so one of the frameworks that I really like is instead of making it me versus you, I try to help them pull that person to your side of the table and make it like you both versus a problem so you can talk about the problems. It doesn't feel adversarial. So for example, let's just say it's marketing. I don't know why I'm thinking about marketing today. And you go and you know that like Ted's department is uh, really falling short. His, his He's just really behind. So you pull him, uh, you know, you kind of want to meet with him. He comes in, you say, you know, hey, Ted, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the department. So it's we, we're talking together, we're facing a problem together. Ted comes in, we can have that conversation like what's happening, what's going on. And then he can start to kind of talk about it. But if Ted comes in and I say, your department sucks, why aren't you hitting your, you know, your numbers? This has been happening for a long time. Don't you have control over your department? Like, and that's, yeah. And that's what happens, right? The other thing that happens as a secondary consequence is that that person is never coming to you when there's problems that they see. Never. They're going to try to figure it out They're going to try to gloss over it somehow, and you will only see it when it is catastrophic and terrible. So you want to have people who feel comfortable talking with you about nuances and challenges, because then you'll hear about them early and they'll see you as a thought partner. But if you wait until these things are, you know, you're blaming, you're punitive, people are going to hide from that because they don't want conflict either. And that's going to set you up for uh, not knowing really what's happening in your business until it's too late. Right. For a leader who might be in a situation where they've already caused harm and they feel like people won't come to them with those types of problems and solutions, what should they do? What what do they need to do to fix the culture that in some ways they even broke? You know, I would have when you're one-to-ones and hopefully they're having one-to-one conversations, I think I would have a really candid discussion about, you know, because you should be in your one-to-ones at least talking about where people are at 
how they're doing, what challenges they have, and if you can unblock them in any way. So if things are struggling, it's a good opportunity to have a conversation to say, what are the challenges in your department right now? Like, like, let's talk about some of those. So again, not me versus you, it's kind of us versus the problem. And, and really opening, like allowing them space to talk about the challenges that they feel, the people in their department that might be hard, and not making sure that you provide a solid experience for them at that time. Because if they open up, and you shut them down or you instantly attack because something triggers you, which it might, um, that's going to just reinforce a bad pattern. So you always get what you reinforce if you are, you know, and you can change that at any time and people won't shift right away, but then they start to believe you over time. Consistency is the thing that always builds trust. If they know you're the same person again and again and again, I mean, think about when you were a kid in a class, and you would watch kids approach the teacher and the teacher was like kind and nice. And you're like, okay, if I have a question, I can ask like Mrs. Cernus or whoever it is. Um, but if you watch the kid approach the teacher and they really like got a lashing or you watch sometimes they're nice, sometimes they're not, that lack of consistency or that punitive model, you're not approaching that teacher anytime soon. And the same is true. It's odd, but we're like, you know, the same people who learn in the same ways. You get what you reinforce. How do you create a culture that like really embodies that in your opinion? Like what does the leader need to do to create an environment where their team even knows like this is the types of things that we want to reinforce and be trying to kind of commit to with our culture? So, you know, culture always starts at the top. And I feel like the person who as at the who is at the top, it's their responsibility to communicate what they value and to demonstrate that over and over and over again. So I don't know about you, but when I went to workplaces, I would see the culture that they said they had, and then I would experience the culture they actually had. And oftentimes those are like very, very different. Um, and what do you play to? You play to the culture that's actually there and not the one that they say. So I would say if you want to create a culture, let's just say that you value agency, right? Like self-initiative and agency. You should be talking about agency in your, you know, all hands. You should be talking, reinforcing agency in your one-to-ones. You should be, when you're promoting someone in front of others, say, you know, Diane really exemplifies agency. She is like taking initiative on these three things. It, you're going to sound to yourself like, I am a robot. I am so repetitive but people need to hear it more than once. And you want them to predict you. Like when they come in, when you come in the room, you want them to go, oh my gosh, have I taken initiative on this? Because he's going to care about agency. Like, and then that creates that culture because you, you look for it. They know to expect it. You're reinforcing it. You talk about it all the time. You reward it. I mean, you find these things to drill down on and you just keep going over and over again. It feels repetitive, but um, it makes a difference. It does. That makes sense. If um, a leader is trying to figure out like, okay, that is what I want to do, but I don't really know which values I should be emphasizing at once. Is there anything that you would advise them to start with? Like, is there any frameworks or approach that you would advise for them to think through before they kind of say, okay, this is what I want to, where I want to go with this? Sure. I think that people can begin to think about what is what are the common traits that you would want your employees to have? Do you want them to have traits of like, for example, bias to action? I want all of us to be a bias to action. Do you want uh, the employees in your, your organization to have a commitment to the mission? Do you want people like, so starting to think about what is the common thread that you want to see? Um, and then being able to reinforce those things and not making it too complicated. Sometimes people say we have 18 values and then I'll do a 360. Sometimes I'll do those and I'll go in and I'll ask someone, it's, it's always an interesting experiment. Can you name the 18 values? And they may, they'll usually say, well, I think that trust is one of them. And like, no one knows what that is. So like, I mean, there, you have to make sure that there are things that you reinforce that can stick and, um, that people can remember. Otherwise, they don't mean anything. One of the things that I've learned a lot from reading your pieces over the years is the idea of not always striving to be like a people pleaser. Um, as a Canadian, I tend to have a bit of a, a problem with trying to keep people happy. And I've tried to shake it, shake myself out of it. Um, but how do you coach folks to get out of that behavior when in many cases, even society kind of like 
encourages you to keep everyone happy and not really get people upset at you? Like, how do you coach people on getting out of that people-pleasing mindset? We tend to take things to extremes in culture. So we'll say either you're a people-pleaser or you don't care what anyone thinks, right? Like, And I feel like telling someone who's naturally a people pleaser that you shouldn't care what anyone thinks is not going to be very effective. So the way in which I think about this is that I want you to tell me who the people matter, you know, who are the people that do matter, what they, you know, what they think about what you're doing or who you are and really kind of name them to yourself. And usually, you know, it might be your spouse, it might be your child, it might be a parent, but, you know, there are very few people whose opinions really matter in your life. And, you know, you don't want to not care what anyone thinks or you end up being a jerk, right? I mean, you're not a really pleasant person. So you do want to care what some people think, but those people are few and far between. And even with those individuals, you start to run opinions through a filter, right? Does this person, uh, is this from someone I value? Do they want the best for me? Or are they, uh, you know, saying these things out of fear or, you know, security? Or is this something that makes sense to me? So, you, you have a small group of people you do care about, their opinions. And then even with that group, you run it through a bit of a filter and you don't always have to care about every opinion, but these are people you should weight heavily, that you should care about and are people that matter to you. So you keep those people happy and you do your best and it keeps your you know home front and friend front in a good place. Right, one of the most ultra successful people who have clearly been able to care very little about what other people think and has been ridiculously successful is Chris Jenner. And I've heard you call out Chris Jenner's success in the past um, because Chris Jenner has been a business mastermind for a while now. Um, but a lot of people give hate to like Chris Jenner and the empire that her and the family have built. I'd be curious to get a sense from you, like what are your thoughts on what she's built and the empire and like even how people respond to kind of Chris Jenner's empire, so so to speak. It is. She's a fantastic example of some of this because you know she was. She comes. People think about her as coming from privilege, but she was an airline stewardess. You know, like it, it, which is wild, right? So she was an airline stewardess at one point. She had a children's clothing shop, I believe, at one point. Um, and yet, you know, Ryan Seacrest, I think, called her the most shrewd negotiator he's ever met. She talks about her story as like sitting in rooms and listening and paying attention. And then, you know, when she needed to operate, not being, you know, hesitant to just go after the yes. She said, you know, if you you get a no, you're talking to the wrong person, just keep pushing. I think that her architecture of multiple billion dollar companies is something that you have to respect. And we see that with personalities oftentimes that are you know, not always uh, as fluffy and and pleasant as we might hope them to be. Uh, But at the same time, I think that she knows what she wanted. She went after it, you know, relentlessly. She has a family that she's kept together and has been able to support. She is as uh, astute as they get. She's not a young person. And she's able to kind of construct an empire in a very modern world, um, you know, again, multiple billion dollar companies, multiple hundreds of millions of dollars in company ventures, and uh, also while locking tight, really important family wealth and also, um, you know, family reputation. You will never see a piece out there that's a hit piece on the Kardashians. People may say things in social media, but she is ruthless when it comes to protecting her reputation. And um, somebody who I think is a great example of somebody has, who has done it their own way, who kind of doesn't come from uh, as privileged a background as you might think, and has really built from zero to uh, an incredible amount. So we don't hear her mentioned with all these things. So I always mention her because I think she's kind of left out on purpose. Uh, I'm the first to plug her in. I appreciate it. I, I 100% agree. You brought up family with that combo. We also brought up family early on, talking about how your grandfather had a farm, et cetera. With a lot of the people that you even coach, like how how much of a factor is family wealth, family legacy in some of the, the minds of the people that you work with and the people that you collaborate with on a regular basis? It's massive. For those who have families, I think that um, creating something that outlives them, that takes care of them is incredibly important. So, you know, like there are many people that I work with and sometimes people say, well, why aren't they, why are they still working? Right? Like you can sell your company and be wealthy for the rest of your life. 
But I think that they're thinking about a few things. One is, you know, how, what can I really do? I think that's always a driver, but also they're trying to think about family legacy from, you know, not just this, you know, this family, this particular family, but generations and generations onward. And they're setting up, you know, obviously they set up trusts and other kind of mechanisms, but um, I think that that element of knowing that no matter how much you've struggled and, you know, we talked about grind and, you know, living your life in this different way, uh, their children don't have to do that at a certain point. And it's a, I think it's a real point of pride for them to be able to provide that. I think it's also a point of agitation because sometimes when kids seem entitled, I think it bothers them at a level that it probably doesn't bother other people, but it really is a point of pride where they say, you know, I've had clients who said things like, you know, I never thought my kid would like go to a private school uh, that costs whatever, or, you know, like, oh, I never, my kids have never flown commercial. Like, it's like a really kind of cool, interesting thing that we can look at and say, oh, it's so entitled and terrible. But for that person, being able to provide that is something that um, they take great pride in. And I think the great individuals oftentimes also put in things that kind of keep those kids grounded. Um, when I lived in Connecticut, I lived next to a guy who did a uh, VC and in, in, he's a European VC and his young son, who's like 14 would go house to house and say, do you have any chores? Cause I have to buy it. I want to buy a Jeep. And my dad is making me like buy it cash. He's not going to pay for it. So he would do things like stack wood for people and, you know, shovel their driveways. And he's like, you got to go and earn this. I'm not giving you one cent. Um, but does he have a financial advantage? Absolutely. He's going to teach him how to manage money and what to do. But I do think it's good that some people make their kids kind of stay in touch with the fact that not everyone is going to grow up exactly like you. And it comes again back to intention, which is fascinating. Um, because it's like the same with your relationship with your partner. You have to be intentional with your career, intentional even with the kids. If that's something that you have, you have to be intentional with. Um, when it came to being a coach and going down that path, was that intentional? What took you into this world? Yeah, it, it wasn't at all. Um, so I think that I started out in psychology very traditionally. I, I, my area of focus was adult psychopathology and forensics. So I started out in a forensic track uh, thinking that I would end up doing things like, you know, I did some testifying. Um, I did evaluations for, you know, uh, mental state at the time of the crime, which then qualifies someone for the insanity defense. So like doing all of those sorts of things is where I really thought I was going to be heading. Um, I ended up doing, you know, psychology very traditionally. I ended up doing some academic work and, you know, I also had a great expertise in personality and personality theory. And so periodically I would teach that and do some of those other things. So, you know, sometimes you have companies that approach you to advise on products when you're in academics or you have a certain area of expertise. And I was advising a company. I had done so a few times and I was doing that work. And one of the venture firm folks said, hey, we have a founder in our portfolio who's really struggling with making decisions. He just got like, you know, a lot of uh, financial infusion and now he's like paralyzed. Could you just talk to him? And I thought, okay, I think I was the only psychologist that they knew. So they kind of had me go and speak with this guy. I had a few meetings with him and then he was kind of back on track and they were like, okay, we have other things we have to do. Um, so I began to see though, when I met with him, the first time I met with him, it was very, very clear to me what his challenge was. And as somebody who had worked from like illness to health, getting somebody who was completely healthy, but just had these minor tweaks, they were easier to spot. And I felt like, wow, this is fantastic. Like I loved it. It was, it was something that like immediately I felt like was hand in glove. I can do this. I'm good at it. I felt like this was a real uh, gift that I could uh, bring forward. And so from that point forward, I started to gather some clients. I had one company that had a really significant exit. I started getting a really good reputation in the space. And then I was like off to the races. I, and I love what I do and I, I will do it until I die. So when you see like, who's that like 90 year old woman who's still talking to these folks, it's probably going to be me. Um, but I absolutely love it. I love it. That's amazing. When it came to like, once you started on this path, did you find other coaches that could mentor you or were you like self-taught and just learning as you went? 
Um, business has always been a part of my life for a, a number of reasons. You know, my significant other is in business and, um, and I have a lot of friends who are in kind of that space and tech and some other things. Um, so yeah, it wasn't, uh, anybody who mentored me. And I think I've made a lot of early mistakes around how I developed out my business. You know, you don't really know what you know until you know it. Um, and so I think I was just feeling my way out and trying to figure things out along the way. I didn't know that coaching was a, a real thing, um, but I felt like what I had to do very early on is to kind of distinguish myself from other people who probably were in a similar area of operation. Um, and so I really dug into the fact that, you know, my background in, in clinical psychology, it's eight years of study and a lot of people you know, my expertise is on the person. So you can be an expert in a number of different fields, but my expertise is kind of on the human. And so I tend to get people who, you know, they know that there's a challenge and much like they'd hire an engineer for a software issue, they hire me for a human one. Um, and so that's kind of how I've been able to operate in this very unique uh, space within psychology, whether it's, you know, an athlete or a CEO, there's, a, there's something within them that I'm able to find and identify. That's awesome. For folks that are looking for a coach, what should they know before they start their journey to decide, okay, I, I think I do need a coach. What should they be thinking about when they're about to make that decision? Uh, personally, I would recommend that they think about what they need them for, because every coach is going to have a sweet spot of operation that they're great at and things that they're not great at. For example, like I don't work with teams, right? Like I'm not going to be somebody who's going to tell you how to structure your business. They're probably not going to be that person. So, you know, a lot of times early on, maybe a founder wants somebody who like, hey, can you help me like structure my term sheet? No, I cannot. Um, do you want somebody who can, you know, vet my, you know, certain people in my organization? Also not my sweet spot. So I think that if you're looking for something specific, find somebody who is really good at that thing and start interviewing a few people in that that area or that space. For me, I have, you know, I, I joke all the time at home. I have one thing, I do one thing well, and that's all I know how to do well. And everything else, I'm sure other people are very, very good at. So I I operate only where I'm I'm good and I feel like I'm I'm really solid. And everything else, I hope that people are doing that too. And that's what I would look for. If I were asking, you know, a, a good friend asked me how to hire a coach, I would say, know what you need, find the person who's done that thing a thousand times and is really good at it. And, um, and hire that person. One last question, then we'll go into the question that I typically end with. But you've been able to build an amazing network. You live on a farm. You've been able to leverage Twitter in an amazing way. For folks that want to expand their network to connect with some of the most impressive people, people who have high net worth, um, what would you give them as advice? Like, Should they go down the path of embracing social media to kind of build a personal brand and do that? Like, what would you advise folks to do if they're trying to kind of get in the room with some of these people? I think there it's a very hard space to get into, honestly. And I don't think Twitter gets you in that room, unless you're looking to get into someone who has built a high net worth through social media. I don't think social media is going to get you in that door. I think, in fact, it would make you very suspicious um, because it looks like you're about to use somebody. But my biggest clients um, are not on social media, to be frank. Uh, so... So, I mean, the way in which you often meet people is through other people. So do your job, do it well. You never know who you're going to be in touch with. And, you know, how you get into circles like that is through personal referral, because those circles are very protected and they want people who they can trust that they know are going to be reliable, that aren't going to be using them and that have their best interest at heart. It used to be, you know, I would have to sign all these NDAs and there was all this stuff to protect people. And now I, I maybe have signed one in the past year, right? Like I rarely sign them because they know that, you know, my business is reliant on the fact that I operate in a certain fashion. And, um, and so be that person that does a great job, does it for whomever you come, you know, that you come across. And eventually people will start to refer you into other networks and just continue to do that great job, be reliable be somebody who's genuinely like authentic about it and don't ever use it. Like you'll never see me taking a photo with somebody who is a client and saying, Hey, at the game, you know, like that's never going to happen. Um, but the reason why it's never going to happen is because, you know, you want to be the person that others can trust. 
Um, and so that's what I, I guess that's the, and you'll continue to scale and, and do well because people will continue to refer you because everybody knows someone who is a few levels up from them. And so that's, they want to be a good referral partner. So, you know, I maybe met with this VC firm and then, you know, VC, VC firms will connect you to investors. And then, you know, and so there's all, and then investors oftentimes know other investors who then know investors who are higher level than them. And, you know, so there's all sorts of ways in which you start to branch out, but um, just do a great job and be of service and, um, and really take it seriously. Mm, I love that. Thank you so much. So um, as we wrap, this is what we do with every folks. Uh, they kind of have to finish the sentence. So before I became a coach, I wish I would have known blank. How much need there actually was, and I should have done it earlier. And in order to be a great coach, I have learned that the most important skill to work on is... Self-development. Like I have to know, I have to always be learning myself. To be great for other people, I have to make sure that I am always not only just like I spend an hour a day reading uh, journals and other things and constructing different models, but not only do I have to be on top of my game, but I have to be taking care of myself. Like I have to be sleeping. I should be bringing my A game to the table because if I'm not, then they're not paying for the experience that they should have and the person that they signed up to engage with. So I think that you need to really heavily invest in yourself and, um, and not skimp on that. Cause I think when you're building something, that's the first area that gets cut is the things you do for yourself. Make it a priority. Dr. Julie Gurner, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. It has been an absolute blast. Folks, if you haven't already subscribed to the Ultra Successful Substack, I strongly encourage you to check it out. Uh, drgurner.substack.com as well as follow Dr. Julie at Dr. Gurner on Twitter and all the other channels. Dr. Julie, thank you so much for making the time. This has been an absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, it's been great chatting with you today. Wonderful being here. Great to meet you in person. You're fantastic. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. See you on the internet. If you want to know how to create like the grades, let's break it down.